Do you know what forensic genealogy is? I mean, it's what caught the Golden State Killer, essentially. It's where law enforcement investigators search a family tree to match DNA to a suspect. It's become a pretty popular investigative technique. We've heard more and more about it. But its recent use in a local murder case involving the death of a young teenage girl in Burnaby has brought up some questions. Undercover police allegedly employed kind of covert tactics such as disguising themselves as tea marketers and giving away free samples to try and collect DNA from a larger group so they could narrow down their search for a suspect. I mean, was that ethical? I mean, it's a little different than having a DNA sample and then submitting it to a website. So what is going on here? We're we're having more kind of ethical questions about using this particular tool. So we thought we would talk about that now with the help of Dr. Nicole Navrosky, who's an assistant professor and forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So tell me, what did you think about this case from out here in BC where they're, they they kind of did things a little bit differently when it comes to genetic genealogy? So in, in one sense, I feel like they didn't. So if we look at what investigators did in BC, it's much the same as what happened actually in the Golden State Killer case is that surreptitious DNA collection. And while there are a lot of conversations right now happening around whether or not that's okay, it really comes down to a a jurisdictional legislation component. So whether or not investigators actually have uh, the legal right to collect samples in that way. When it comes to the DNA side of genetic genealogy and utilizing that DNA information in order to generate a potential lead, much of that was processed in in what we're seeing on all of these other cases. So the DNA was collected. It was outsourced to a private company. Uh, genetic testing was performed. A genealogical component was conducted in order to build out potential relationships and identify a person of interest and then that information given back to investigators to pursue the lead. See, my feeling on that was these are free samples. Nobody was forcing people to take those free samples. So they didn't have to take them. Then they wouldn't have given up their DNA. Yeah, it does. It does get a little bit murky, I would say. At the end of the day, though, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion as to what is right and wrong with regard to the sample collection as I am a true proponent of believing in the law and if they were abiding by the law then yeah. then unfortunately it, it's just a consequence of circumstance but uh, we rely sometimes on the acquisition of sur- surreptitious samples in order to develop those investigative leads but again that's really going to be jurisdictionally specific. How popular has this become as an investigative technique? Oh I would say that it's on the forefront of all conversations in forensic genetics and probably on the forefront of most conversations for investigators, especially those who pursue cold cases or violent crime. We're seeing it all across the globe. We're seeing consortiums being formed. We're seeing different people coming to the table to have unique conversations about how to move both the science forward, how to move the investigative process forward. And we're really seeing an increase in collaboration at the international level, which I think is very profound and substantial and will hopefully get us to the point where 
we have a really robust system in place to serve the public. And I do remember the first time we heard about this when the Golden State case kind of became very well known, you know, six years ago, whatever that was. And there were all these questions about whether or not it was ethical because, hey, people aren't submitting their DNA to the site for that. Have they overcome those particular legal ethical issues? I think that's a really, really great question. So you're right. Back in 2018, 2019, when this first use of investigative applications of the databases started, there was a lot of confusion. So people thought if they used 23andMe or Ancestry.com that the private companies who they paid their money to were disclosing information. But what actually was happening was that upload to GEDmatch, which was at the time a public database. Now GEDmatch is privately owned, but there is a huge disclosure and any individual who is uploading their sample has the choice to opt in, which allows for investigative searching or opt out where they are not having their samples searched for investigative purposes. So that transparency in terms of genetic privacy or however we want to look at it is now on the forefront consent page when you're first uploading your sample. And when there was that, um, initial strong reaction, all samples were opted out, and then every single person had to manually go in and re-opt in if they wanted to stay in that searchable database by investigators. And what I find so interesting about that, Dr. Navrosky, is that it's still working, right? It's not like everybody is opting out. People are clearly choosing to allow this. Yeah. So what's really interesting about human nature is inherently most, if not all of us, are good people on the inside. Um, And so we want to help. We want to contribute beneficially to society. And so there's that almost that philosophy where if your family member actually did something bad, that's on them. That's not on you. And then you want to contribute to solving crime, to making the world a better place. And so I think that's why we see that continued increase in public samples going into the database for searching is is that innate desire to want to do good and to help. How do you see this evolving then? What, what is the next frontier of this? So in my opinion, where I see this evolving is into those public labs. So we have a handful of public labs in Canada. We have obviously hundreds in the United States and worldwide. But that migration away from potentially just using the private labs that are more for hire into the public labs where you're already submitting that casework evidence. So the casework evidence will go through that traditional workflow. Maybe it comes up with not a strong result. And then within that forensic lab, they can pursue alternate chemistries or alternate approaches, genetic genealogy being one of those approaches to potentially solve the case. And then it's all maintained right there in the lab. They can disseminate a report and then it it goes right back to the investigator's prosecution the way a traditional case would be processed. And I think that that's going to be something we're going to see a lot of over the next five to 10 years is that onboarding and that validation of labs, bringing that back in-house so that they can serve their local communities more immediately. Right. All right. These cases, so fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Nicole Navrosky, who's an assistant professor and forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto, talking about the ethical issues surrounding using genetic genealogy as an investigative practice, which, as you heard her say, pretty much all police forces do these days. And they're kind of breaking new ground, as we heard with that Ibrahim Ali uh, murder case trial uh, right here in B.C., raising lots of questions, too. Very interesting discussion.